السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحبه ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Once again we gather for the monthly tafsir of the Holy Qur'an Having started from the end of the Qur'an We've now reached surah number 96 Namely surah Iqra <coughs> Surah Iqra is known by a number of names Surah Al-Alaq <coughs> Surat Iqra and Surat Iqra Bismarabbik Al-Ladhi Surat Iqra Bismarabbik The name Surat Al-Alaq is taken from the second verse of the surah and when we reach that I will explain what it means So most famously it's actually known as Surat Al-Alaq Alaq means, one of the meanings of Alaq is clots of blood Let me quickly translate the surah and then inshallah I'll begin its commentary. So, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق Read in the name of your Lord who has created خلق الإنسان من علق who has created man from clots of blood اقرأ وربك الأكرم Or you could say a clot of blood who has created man from a clot. Iqra' Rabbuk al-Akram. Read, and your Lord is the most gracious. Alladhi allama bil-qalam. He who has taught by the pen. Allama l-insana ma lam ya'lam. Who has taught man what he did not know. Kalla, nay. Inna l-insana layatgha. Indeed, man transgresses. Ar-ra'ahu staghna. Since he sees himself as being independent, in ila rabbika ruja'a, indeed unto your Lord is the return. Have you seen one who prevents Abdan Ida Sulla, a servant when he prays? What do you see? If maybe he is on guidance, O Amr Taqwa. Or he has instructed taqwa. Have you seen if he rejects and turns away? 
Does he not see that Allah sees? Kalla, nay, la illam yanta. If he does not desist, lanasfa'am bin nasiyah, then we will most assuredly seize him by the forelock. Nasiyatin kathibatin khati'ah. A sinful, lying forelock. فَلْيَدْعُ So let him call his assembly. سَنَدْعُ الزَّبَانِيَةِ We shall call the infernal guards. كَلَّا نَيْ لَا تُطِعْهُ Do not obey him. Do not obey him. وَاسْجُدْ and prostrate. وَاقْتَرِبْ and draw close. This is a simple translation of the surah. The surah should be split into two parts for the purpose of our understanding. The first part is the first five verses. The total number of verses is 19. So the first five verses are the first part of the surah, and then the remaining 14 verses are the second part of the surah. And the reason I make this distinction will become clear in a moment. (coughs) Well, let me give a summary. The... As we move along backwards, the surahs become longer. And one of the features of most of the surahs of the Qur'an is that, not, is that they weren't, not all of them at least, weren't, sorry, not all of them were revealed in a single instance as a complete surah. Rather, there were portions, verses, and... Nor was it the case that a surah was revealed in portions and only when that surah ended did another surah begin. No, verses were revealed and the Prophet ﷺ would instruct the companions to place these different verses in different surahs of the Qur'an. So simultaneously, or shall we say in a short period of time, a number of verses could have been revealed, all of which were placed in different surahs by the Prophet ﷺ at that given time. So, keeping that in mind, this is one of the first long surahs that we've come across, moving backwards from the end of the Qur'an. And this is a clear example of the first part of the surah being revealed much earlier, in fact at the very beginning of Islam. And the remainder of the surah being revealed at a later date. Not much later, but some time later. This 96th surah of the Qur'an is renowned and is famous primarily for one reason, which is that the first five verses mark the beginning of the revelation of the Qur'an to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They mark the beginning of revelation to him. These were the very first words revealed to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The five verses. Hence, this surah is renowned for this reason. The first, va- the first five verses in question are اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق اقرأ وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم recites in the name of your Lord 
who has created. Who has created man from a clot. Re- recite, and your Lord is the most gracious, the most noble. He who has taught by the pen. Who has taught man what he did not know. These were the first five verses revealed to the Prophet Now, we shouldn't just pass by these verses in a casual manner. The background and the history of the revelation of these first five verses is significant. Umul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates... Obviously, this is something which she learnt from the Prophet ﷺ himself, since she wasn't present at the time. But she relates that prior to the revelation of the Qur'an, when the Prophet ﷺ was approaching his 40th birthday, The beginning of revelation was marked by very vivid and true dreams. So for a number of months prior to the revelation of these first five verses, the Prophet ﷺ would see clear dreams, clear visions. These were very vivid and sharp. But more importantly, he would actually see the manifestation and the interpretation of these dreams as clear as daylight. Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says, describing the, the interpretation and the manifestation of these dreams with the words, مثل فلق subh, like the breaking of dawn. Like the breaking of the morning. So the dreams were very clear, very vivid. And their manifestation were also very clear and vivid. And reality was a reflection of the Prophet ﷺ's dreams for a good number of months prior to the revelation of these first verses. During that period, the Prophet ﷺ was more drawn and more endeared to solitude and seclusion. So he would retreat into solitude and seclusion. This is one of the famous long first hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari. So when the Prophet would withdraw into seclusion, he would normally retreat to a mountain and a cave in that mountain known as Gharu Hira, the cave of Hira. There the Prophet ﷺ would spend many days and nights alone. In Arabic it was known as, she says, He would practice tahannuth. Tahannuth was ta'abud, worshipping Allah, spending time in contemplation and meditation. Obviously at the time, the Qur'an had not been revealed. And therefore the forms of worship as we know them in Islam 
were not introduced to the Prophet So we have no definite information as to the form and the manner that his worship took. But considering the reports, it would be the remembrance of Allah and contemplation and meditation on the greatness of Allah Azza wa Jal. That's what he was guided to. And this tahannuth, much of it would take place in the month of Ramadan. So this shows that the i'takaf of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam began not just in his later years of Medina, but the history of i'takaf stretches back all the way to before the revelation of the first verses of the Qur'an. That was his i'takaf. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would do i'takaf in Gharu Hira. And that continued all the way till i'takaf in Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this was his i'takaf, his tahannuth, his ta'abud. These are the two words used in the hadith, tahannuth and ta'abud. He would spend many nights in seclusion, in worship. He would take provisions with him and then Ummul Mu'mineen Khadijah radiyallahu anha would also come frequently to replenish his supplies. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa would spend some time there and then descend again to return to his family. It was in the month of Ramadan, in his 40th year, or after his 40th year, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was alone in the cave. And when he himself relates that Jibreel alayhi salam came to him, but not in his true full form at that time at least. And he said to him, Iqra, recite. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa being unlettered, instantly said, Ma'ana biqari, I am not one to read. So when he said that, Jibreel, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says, Jibreel alayhi salam, he seized me. Then he squeezed me until he pushed me to the limits of my endurance. Then he released me. Then he said, Iqra, read, recite. Again, the Prophet said, I am not one to read. Again, he seized the Prophet and crushed him. He pressed me, he squeezed me until he took me to the limit of my endurance. Then he released me. Then he again said, read, recite. I again replied, ma'ana So he squeezed me again for the third time until he pushed me to the limits and the extent of my endurance. Then he released me. Then he said, read. Then Jibreel alayhi salam recited these verses of the Qur'an to him. He said to him, read, Iqra', Iqra', Bismi Rabbika al-Ladhi khalaq, khalaq al-Insana min alaq, Iqra' wa Rabbuka al-Akram, al-Ladhi allama bil-Qalam, allama al-Insana ma'alam ya'alam. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then recited. Then Jibreel alayhi salam left. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was overwhelmed and filled with awe 
by this experience, he immediately descended and rushed home, saying to Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah radiyallahu anha, when he entered the house, he was trembling. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was trembling and filled with awe and fright. And he, as soon as he entered, he said to Khadijah radiyallahu anha, and the family zammiluni, zammiluni, shroud me in a cloth because he was trembling. Then he spoke to Khadijah radiyallahu anha and explained to her what he had experienced. And he added, قَدْ خَشِيتُ عَلَى نَفْسِي Indeed, I have I fear for myself. Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah radiyallahu anha reassured him. It was remarkable. Imagine the leader of mankind, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, being who he was. He was trembling in fear, in fright, filled with awe, overwhelmed by this experience. On that occasion, who was the one present to reassure him? It was none other than a woman. Lady Khadijah radiallahu anha. And her reassurance was of such a sublime nature. Her words of wisdom. She said, when he said to her, I fear for myself. She said to him, never. Allah will never disgrace you. Then she praised him. That saying that indeed you tie the bonds of kin and blood. You speak the truth. You bear the burden of other people. You are hospitable to the guests. And you assist others in their calamities and their misfortunes. One very important point here, which I mentioned years ago, 13, 14 years ago, when I first started the commentary of At-Tajid al-Sariyah. To praise someone and to flatter them is to their face. To praise someone to their face and to flatter them is haram. But it's not haram in the absolute sense, without qualification, without exception. The prohibition of praising people to their face is when it's done insincerely, one, it's done for flattery. Because that's deception. It's done with an ulterior motive. That's forbidden. Also, if there's a danger, and in most instances there is, this is why it's strongly discouraged, if there's a danger that the other person will become inflated and proud and self-conceited by someone's praise to their face, then undoubtedly it's forbidden because you will be doing more good and more harm than good. You may please them momentarily, but you will do untold damage to their sense of self, to their ego, 
to their spirits, to their ruh, and to their mind. And subhanAllah, the wisdom of the teachings of Islam. That's why in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, وَحْثُ الْتُرَابُ فِي وُجُوهِ الْمَدَّاحِينَ Throw dust in the face, or in the mouths. Throw and fill dust in the mouths of flatterers. And I just read something recently, within the past few weeks, that again, recent studies and research have shown that children who are constantly praised actually suffer emotional and psychological damage in the long term. And this shows when they grow into adults. And this is contrary to what people used to believe before. So, what should be done with children? Well, what was suggested is what Islamic teaching has always said. Be balanced, be moderate. Do not abuse, do not denigrate, do not degrade, do not humiliate. But at the same time, do not smother the children. Do not constantly praise them. Do not constantly raise them and elevate them. And one of the quirks, one of the twists in this is that if children are constantly praised, children develop an understanding that the praise is false. Because it's constant, it's continuous, and it's coming from loved ones. And so they actually develop a false, they actually develop an understanding that this is false assurance. So why is there a need for false assurance? Is because we aren't what we are told we are. We aren't what we are made out to be. So this actually leads to low self-esteem. So the teaching is be balanced. With children and with adults. Allah tells us in Surah Al-Hujarat, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا لَا يَسْخَرْ قَوْمٍ مِّنْ قَوْمٍ عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَكُونُوا خَيْرًا مِّنْهُمْ وَلَا نِسَاءٌ مِّنْ نِسَاءٍ عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَكُنَّ خَيْرًا مِّنْهُمْ وَلَا تَلْمِزُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ وَلَا تَنَابِزُوا بِالْأَلْقَابِ بِئْسَ الْإِسْمُ الْفُسُوقُ بَعْدَ الْإِيمَانِ وَمَنْ لَمْ يَتُمْ فَأُولَئِكَ and let's not a group of women mock another group of women. Lest those who are being mocked are better than those who are ridiculing them. Then, And do not defame yourselves. I do not defame each other. And do not taunt one another with names. That means even simple names. Any title which the addressee finds offensive is forbidden. Regardless of how true it may be. 
So if someone has a certain physical feature or a prominent characteristic, then it could be a disability, it could be a disadvantage, it could be a detracting physical feature regardless. Or it could be, it doesn't have to be physical, it could be something else. To call them by that name is deeply offensive. And it's not just offensive, it's haram. And no one should think these three things that Allah has forbidden in this verse as being trivial. Ridiculing one another, mocking one another, calling out to one another with offensive titles and names, and defaming each other. These aren't trivial, these aren't inconsequential, these aren't casual. These aren't small, because Allah ends the verse with the words, That evil indeed is the name of sin after iman. What does that mean? Evil indeed is the name of sin after iman. What this means is that after Allah has blessed you and endowed you with faith, after Allah has gifted you with the great gift and blessing of Iman. It is extremely unbefitting, unbehoving of you. And it is in fact evil of you to continue to indulge in these despicable behaviours. They are incompatible with faith in Allah. They are incompatible with Iman. A mu'min, a believer, does not mock, does not ridicule, does not defame and does not taunt or call out to anyone with offensive names. These behaviours are incompatible with Iman. Allah ends the verse by saying, evil indeed is the name of sin after Iman. So that's what the the Qur'an says about speaking negatively to people about people, especially to their face. Do not mock do not defame, do not denigrate, do not degrade, do not taunt, do not call out with offensive names. Then at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ tells us, cast dust and fill the mouths of flatterers with dust. So what's the teaching then? What do we do? Perfect balance. Remain moderate and balanced. And part of that moderation and balance is that you criticize someone where criticism is due and justified. With honesty, with justice, and in an upright, decent manner. Criticizing a person is not wrong. And you won't be doing the other person harm. This is why Umar ibn Khattab used to say, May Allah have mercy on someone who gives me a gift of my faults and errors. May Allah have mercy on a man who presents me with a gift of my errors. And as we know from the hadith, a believer is a mirror of a believer. And at the same time, where praise is justified and is due, then one can praise. And here, there's no prohibition of praising someone to their face. If 
the circumstances require it, if it's actually helpful, if it's needed, like on this occasion. If a person is in need of reassurance, for instance, someone is, I'm not comparing the two, but just to give you an example, if someone is suffering from low self-esteem, if someone is beating themselves up, if someone is indulging in a bout of self-flagellation, if someone is degrading and diminishing oneself, feeling low in the pits, then those who are close to them, their loved ones, those who know them, can and should honestly and sincerely remind them of Allah's gifts and favours and blessings on them. Not make them feel that they are being ungrateful, no. That will only add to the misery. But to remind them of the good qualities that they have, that Allah has endowed them with. To remind them of how special they are. And indeed, every human being is special. Every human being is unique. You will always find someone who is more intelligent than you. You will always find someone who is more handsome than you, more beautiful than you. You will always find someone who is physically stronger than you. You will always find someone who exceeds you, who outdoes you, who surpasses you in any one quality, without doubt. There were those who lived longer than the Prophet ﷺ. He died in 60, he died at the age of 63, and they were lunar years. There were people who lived longer than the Prophet ﷺ. I met one scholar once, and I asked him his age. And he said to me, don't talk to me about my age. I am living on borrowed time, and I am ashamed. I said, why? He said, for I have lived longer than the Prophet ﷺ did. So, people, people lived longer than the Prophet ﷺ. So, someone, someone will always outdo us, surpass us, excel us, exceed us, in one particular quality. But, as a combination of the qualities, as a collection of these characteristics... Allah has made every human being unique. There is no one better in that. And this is why we should all be grateful for what we are and who we are. Strive to better ourselves. But at the same time, not be ungrateful to Allah. So if someone is in need of reassuring, then by all means, not only can one, but one should reassure the other person. And we find the perfect example in Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa came home filled with fright, overwhelmed, filled with awe, saying to the family, Zammiluni, Zammiluni, cover me, shroud me. Then he said to her, قَدْ خَشِيتُ عَلَى نَفْسِي I fear for myself. And her reply was, never by Allah. Allah will never disgrace you. And then she praised the Prophet ﷺ. Imagine, 
she being the wife, she being a woman, she was reassuring and reminding the leader of all the messengers, alayhim Because he was a human being. And he feared for himself. He was filled with awe and fright. And she reassured him. And what words of reassurance. She reminded him of his noble and sublime qualities. She then took him to her cousin brother, Warqat ibn Nawfal, who was blind. And he was an enlightened soul who shunned paganism and idolatry. And he searched for the truth. And his search for truth and for the worship of Allah with Tawheed and in monotheism led him to accepting and embracing Christianity. And he was a scholar of a man from Mecca, the cousin brother of Umm Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha. And he, before, before he became blind, he had studied and read and he used to read and translate scriptures, Hebrew scriptures, from Hebrew into Arabic. And he was a learned man. So she took him to him and said to her cousin brother that listen to your nephew to see what he has to say. So Prophet was asked by Waraqat bin Nawfal, what do you see, O oh my nephew? So the Prophet related everything to him, to which Waraqat bin Nawfal said, this is that same angel, that same spirit. This is that same spirit, that same angel that was sent down to the Prophet Musa And he knew what this meant because of his knowledge of the scriptures and the history of the prophets. So he said to him, since he was old, he said to him, would that, how I wish, would that I be a young man when that time comes? Would that I would be present when your people shall drive you from the city? So the Prophet ﷺ said, O oh, Mukhrijiyahum, will my people drive me from the city? The Prophet ﷺ said, So Waraqat ibn Nawfal said, of course, never has a Prophet of Allah come with what you have come with, except that he has been opposed and he has been given trouble and hurt. Then he said, if I would be alive at that time, لَأَنصُرَنَّكَ نَصْرًا مُؤَزَّرًا I will most assuredly support you in a very definite and strong way. But then he did not survive for very long and he passed away. That marks the beginning of the revelation. And like I said earlier, we shouldn't just pass, pass by these verses in a casual manner. Rather, we should... Remember how significant these five verses are. They marked the beginning of Revelation. They marked that period for 23 years, during which the doors of the heavens were open. And man communicated with Allah. And Allah revealed Revelation to the Prophet ﷺ, who served as a conduit as a go-in-between, and as both the representative of Allah to his creation and the representative of the creation to the creator. 
But with the going, with the passing of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, this came to an end. And that in itself was significant. The beginning of revelation was significant because it meant that connection and that communication between the Creator and His creation. And with the passing of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that communication ended. That connection was severed. This is why those who knew and understood, they realized the significance of this event. The beginning of revelation and the end of revelation. And who was one of those? None other than Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah. But even more than Umar, Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah, it was again another lady. Women have played an amazing role in the beginning of Islam. Far from Islam suppressing and degrading women. And far from our cultural attitudes being representative of Islam. If we look at the true history of Islam, women played a major role in the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and in the beginning of Islam. Umm Sulaym radiyallahu anha, the mother of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anha, the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Sumiya radiyallahu anha, the mother of Umar ibn Yasir. The first martyr, in, the first believer in Islam was not even Abu Bakr radiyallahu anha. It was a woman. Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha. And another figure was Ummu Ayman radiyallahu anha. Ummu Ayman radiyallahu anha, whose name was Barakah. Her name was Barakah. Ummu Ayman radiyallahu anha was the maid who actually looked after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So she remained with him for most of his life. She had seen him since childhood. She can't have been much older than him himself. But she nursed him. She looked after him. As a little girl herself, she looked after him. She nursed him. She grew up with him. And she remained a part of his life till the end. At times, she would even speak to him in a manner that was quite different to the way others would address him. But the Prophet ﷺ in his forbearance, in his tolerance, and in his understanding, and his respect and love for her, he would, he would overlook everything. This Umm Ayman radiallahu anha, after the Prophet ﷺ had passed away, one day Abu Bakr radiallahu anha said to Umar radiallahu anha, one of them said to the other, let us go and visit Umm Ayman. Just as the Prophet ﷺ would go to visit Ummu Ayman during his lifetime. So they both came. Abu Bakr and Umar anhuma, they came and sat down before Ummu Ayman anha, and she started weeping. So both of them, Abu Bakr and Umar anhuma, thought that she was weeping at the loss of Rasulullah. So to reassure her, 
Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhuma, these two great men with their understanding and with their intelligence and wisdom and their foresight and insight, seeing her weep, Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhuma sought to reassure her and console her. So they both said to her, why do you weep? Do you not know that after all, what is with Allah is far better than the Prophet, for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam than what is with us? So Umm Ayman radiyallahu anha's reply, marvel at her reply. She said, I do not weep at the loss of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. For I know that that which is with Allah is far better for him. But I weep because wahi, revelation has come to an end. When she said that to them, Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhuma burst into tears and they sat weeping with her. What understanding. This is why I say we shouldn't just pass by these verses. This was the significance. That these verses marked the beginning of that channel of communication and contact between the creation and the creator. And with the end of the revelation, that door was closed for good. Those who knew and understood they realize the significance. Someone of the caliber of Umm Ayman radiallahu anha, who had remained with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa throughout her life. On that occasion, she had an insight and an understanding that even Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anha did not have at that moment. That's how significant this was. So these verses, Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, mark the beginning of revelation. Now what do these first five verses actually mean? Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, recite in the name of your Lord who created. We have been commanded, just as the Prophet ﷺ was commanded, to take the name of Allah when we recite the Qur'an. So in other verses we learn, that when we recite the Qur'an, إِذَا قَرَأْتُ الْقُرْآنَ فَاسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ When you recite the Qur'an, then seek refuge in Allah from the accursed shaytan. So along with أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ We also read بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ And this is it. اِقْرَأْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Recite in the name of your Lord. And it's not just reciting the Qur'an. We have been commanded that and taught that whatever we do, the beginning of our words, beginning of our speech, commencement of our deeds, everything should begin by the name of Allah. So, Iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, recite by the name of your Lord. Which Lord? Alladhi khalaq, he who has created. The object of Allah's creation or the, op- the object of Allah's act of creating has not been mentioned here. It's unqualified, unspecified. It's just left general. He who has created, meaning he who created everything. Then in the next verse, Allah says, خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ He who created man. Now look at the shift. Re recite, read in the name, in, by the name, or in the by the name of your Lord, who created, created what? He created everything, the whole universe, and the universe is vast. It's beyond our wildest imagination. 
as I've mentioned before, just to grasp, not to grasp, but just to gain an inkling of an idea. Consider how vast the earth is. And the earth is one planet out of the solar system of eight planets. The solar system, which is huge, with hundreds of millions of miles between the outer planets. One planet to the other. Hundreds of millions of miles. And this is one solar system orbiting around one sun, one star. And this one star is just one star out of a huge galaxy. And that's just one galaxy. Astronomers say, to give you an example, just astronomers say, there are an average of 200 billion stars in each galaxy. And there are approximately an average of 200 billion galaxies. And our understanding is that all of these galaxies still form only part of one known universe. And now they speak of multiverses. And we believe that all of these multiverses, whatever they may be, if they are, all of it still collectively only marks one out of the seven heavens. So Allah has created all of that. But what really matters in that entire creation, in all of these multiverses, in all of these universes, in all of these galaxies, and what really matters is if we zoom down from that vast universe all the way down to one thing. Allah created, he who created, he left it general. Everything. But of his entire creation, what does he speak of? خَلَقَ insan, He who created man. We are worthy enough in the sight of Allah of being mentioned specifically from his entire creation. But lest we become inflated with pride and Arrogance. Allah reminds us, خلق الإنسان من علق. He create, who created man from a clot. That's our lowly, humble biological origin. We are but clots of blood. Now, as, uh, you may have heard me variably say clot singular and clots plural for those of you who understand Arabic. علق is actually the plural of علق. And alaqah means clot. It can even mean a collection of cells. But I won't dabble into the scientific aspects of this verse. We'll leave it at that. Suffice to know that you can still say clot, meaning clots is the congealment and the collection of smaller clots. So whether you say clots of blood, linguistically that's correct, min alaq. Or if you say clots of blood, Although the word alaq is plural, the meaning of clots in English as a singular is a collection of smaller clots of blood, or congealed. So that's our origin. And this isn't our absolute origin, because obviously there are stages of creation before that as well, but it's one of the earlier stages of creation. It's one of the phases of our development. 
At one time, we were just simple cells and clots of blood. That is our origin. خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ عَلَقَ اقْرَأْ وَرَبُّكَ الْأَكْرَمُ Allah again repeats, recites, and your Lord is the most gracious. This was uh, an affirmation for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa because he said, مَا أَنَا بِقَارِ I am not one to read. He was told at the beginning, اقْرَأْ read, recite, and then he's told again here in this third verse, read, recite. اقْرَأْ وَرَبُّكَ الْأَكْرَمُ Recite, and your Lord is the most gracious. الَّذِي عَلَّمَ بِالْقَلَمُ He who taught by the pen. Literacy, writing, has always played an important part in history, in knowledge, in information. And it's metaphorical. Anything that is related to the written word, even modern instruments. But... It's, it's a metaphor, it's an allegory for writing, for reading, for literacy. And the conveying and transfer of information through visual means. So, the pen or reading, writing, literacy, and the instruments of passing information are all important. And... Even though for the Arabs at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, writing and reading were not wide, literally wasn't common, it wasn't widespread. But since then, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself, who was kept unlettered by Allah, he always emphasized the importance of learning, of education, even though Allah kept him unlettered. <clears throat> to the extent that the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Badr, when the captives were taken, those who were not ransomed because their families were either unable or unwilling to ransom them, the Prophet ﷺ made their ransom simple, no money. Those of them who could read and write were told to teach the people of Medina. So education has always played an important part. And this is a reference to that. He who taught man by the pen. And like I said, the pen here is a reference to literacy, to any instrumental means of passing on knowledge and information. عَلَّمَ الْإِنسَانَ مَا لَمْ يَعْلَمْ Who taught man what he did not know. Here there's something quite important, which is that although all our knowledge and information comes from Allah ultimately, one of the great meanings of this verse, عَلَّمَ الْإِنسَانَ مَا لَمْ يَعْلَمْ Who taught man what he did not know, is to do with spirituality and revelation. Revelation has brought to us. With these verses began that process of revelation which brought to us that wisdom and understanding and that knowledge which we could have never acquired through our senses, our means and our own intelligence. There's only so much that we can do, so much that we can manage before we reach an end. 
where our understanding ends, where our intelligence ends, the wisdom of revelation begins. So, who taught man what he did not know. This means everything that man did not know before, but specifically, and most importantly, the truths of religion, the truths of revelation. Those truths that human minds could have never arrived at of their own accord. So, he taught man what he did not know. These were the first five verses. And they mark the beginning of revelation. This is what the Prophet ﷺ came down with from Ghar Hira. And that's the first part of this surah. A lot more can be said, but we don't have much time, so I'll suffice with this. Moving on to the next remainder of the surah. The words are, Nay, indeed man transgresses. Because he sees himself as independent. Let me just quickly translate the remaining 14 verses so that we have an idea again of what's being said here. Because they are all more or less related to one thing. So, nay, indeed, man transgresses because he sees himself as independent. Indeed, unto your Lord is the return. Have you seen one who prevents a servant when he prays? Have you seen? If maybe he is on guidance, or he instructs to taqwa. Do you, do you see? If he rejects and turns away, does he not see that? Does he not know that Allah sees? Nay, if he does not desist, then we shall, we shall most assuredly seize him by the forelock. A lie, a sinful, deceitful forelock. So let him summon his assembly. We shall also call the infernal guards. Nay, do not obey him and prostrate and draw close. These verses are, were revealed following a confrontation between Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and one of the leaders of the Quraysh, Amr ibn Hisham, more infamously known as Abu Jahl. His name was Amr ibn Hisham, Amr, the son of Hisham, from the clan of Makhzum, a very wealthy and powerful figure in Mecca. And his kunya was Abu al-Hakam, the father of wisdom. He was... A wily, wily character, very politically attuned, very intelligent, very adept at managing alliances and garnering support. And he was noted for his gifts of oratory, of eloquence, of intelligence, of leadership. And thus, People gave him the title Father of Wisdom. But because of his bitter hatred towards Rasulullah, he sunk very low. And because of his lowly, despicable qualities in relation to the Prophet and his bitter opposition, the Prophet nicknamed him Abu Jahl, the father of ignorance. And he played a prominent role in the early days of Islam. 
to understand Meccan society, I've explained before, there was no, it was a tribal society, there was no one overall leader. They regard them as first amongst equals. So, each family, each individual was represented and protected by the family, the family was represented by the clan, the clans were represented by the tribe. And the dominant tribe in Mecca was Quraysh. And the Quraysh was made up by many different clans, some more powerful than others. And one of the clans was Mukhzum, Banu Mukhzum. And he was very powerful. Possibly the most powerful clan in Mecca at the time. And the chief of Banu Mukhzum, or one of its chiefs, was Abu Jahl. There were other chiefs also. Khalid ibn al-Walid was from the same clan. And Khalid ibn al-Walid's father, al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, was actually more senior than uh, Abu Jahl. So he was much more senior. So he, in fact, he was a greater leader. But there were many different leaders. And we've heard, we've all heard of Sanadid al-Quraysh, the chieftains and the father figures of the Quraysh. Abu Jahl was one of them. But they were much more senior in position, in authority, and older figures amongst the Quraysh. But this was like a council, a senate. They would all gather in Darul Nadwa, the, the assembly in Mecca. And it was actually quite democratic in a way, because they would all gather and they would have strong discussions and they would reach decisions collectively. But it was still a very tribal and hierarchical society. But Abu Jahl rose to prominence, not so much because he was the overall most powerful leader of Mecca, no. He actually rose to prominence because of his bitter opposition to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Some other leaders, they opposed the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam on an ideological basis. They opposed him because of their clan and because of their personal interests. But they never sunk low. They maintained a decorum. They maintained a certain self-dignity, even in opposition. But Abu Jahl, for some reason, he was quite bitter and despicable in his behavior. And this is why he was probably one of the most infamous opponents of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa On one occasion, he, he did a lot. He's the same person who invited, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was performing salah in the mataf, a few years after, he was sitting with his cronies, and he said to them that, who will stand up? This is Abu Jahl speaking. Who will rise and go to the she-camel of such and such a family that has just given birth and collect the afterbirth and the amniotic sac of that she-camel that has given birth and bring that filth and dump it on the back of Muhammad whilst he is praying? So one of them stood up. Abu Jahl never did it. He was the one who instigated it. So one of them stood up, went and got that amniotic sack, 
and the afterbirth and came and dumped it on the Prophet ﷺ whilst he was in prostration. And it was, no one could, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was present, but he being alone was unable to assist Rasulullah but someone went and informed Fatima radiyallahu well the household Fatima radiyallahu anha as a little girl came running it was so heavy that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa could not rise from his prostration so she came and she pushed that filth and that afterbirth of the she-camel away and off the back of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and then she stood there cursing and abusing these chieftains of the Quraysh who were actually falling over each other in laughter. And this was all the doing of Abu Jahl. That's just one despicable example or one example of his despicable behavior and his personal bitterness and enmity towards Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was the parallel of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. So in Medina, you had Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who was a bitter opponent and a personal opponent of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in Mecca, you had Abu Jahl. On another occasion, this was earlier on, Abu Jahl came out and he saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam performing salah. And he warned him and said, I don't ever want you to pray in this manner again in Al-Masjid Al-Haram, in the, in the sacred precincts of the Masjid. And Imam Muslim and others relate that when he saw him again, he repeatedly had forbidden the Prophet ﷺ to pray and warned him that don't you dare pray here. So Abu Jahl once said that if I ever see Muhammad praying salah again here, then I will stamp on his neck with my feet. I will crush his neck with my feet. And I will rub his face in the dust. So on the, on the subsequent occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was calmly praying salah. Abu Jahl saw him, came and scolded him saying, did I not warn you never to pray again? So on this occasion, the Prophet ﷺ exchanged words with him and threatened him. And Abu Jahl said in reply, O Muhammad, what do you threaten me with? What do you threaten me with? Do you not see that in this whole valley, i.e. between the hills of Mecca, when they used to say in this valley, they meant Mecca, the valley of Mecca. So he said, do you not see that in this entire valley, i.e. of Mecca, I am the one with the greatest support and with the greatest assembly of men behind me. So do you not, what, what do you threaten me with? So he said that on one occasion. So on this occasion, when the Prophet ﷺ was praying, he went up to him and said, did I not warn you that you shouldn't be praying here? And then he went to attack the Prophet ﷺ. Those who were present all of a sudden saw him throwing his arms up in fright and hastily beating a retreat. 
and throwing up his arms as a form of protection before himself. So they asked him, what happened? You said you were going to crush Muhammad's neck with your feet, uh, or stamp on his neck with your feet, and you were going to rub his face in the dirt. So what happened? Why did you retreat in that manner, throwing up your arms to protect yourself? So he said, do you not see what I see? He said, when I raised my hands and moved towards Muhammad, I suddenly saw a trench of fire between myself and him. And I saw a whole host with wings. He saw creatures with wings. He said, I see all these with wings. On that occasion, the Prophet ﷺ said, had he touched the Prophet ﷺ, the angels would have seized him piece by piece. The angels would have snatched him and seized him limb by limb. So it was after that occasion that Allah revealed these verses of Surah Al-Alaq. So although specifically these remaining verses are about Abu Jahl, he may have been the cause of revelation, but the lesson is universal and eternal. So the warnings given here, or the good message given here, both are equally applicable to us in this day and age. And what are they? Allah says, Nay, indeed, man transgresses. Because he sees himself as being independent. I.e. independence of Allah. Again, this was to do with Abu Jahl. So let's use him as an example. Why was Abu Jahl, what led Abu Jahl to be so bitter in his opposition? A man of undeniable intelligence and wisdom, so much so that he was given the title Abu al-Hakam, father of wisdom. A man so astute politically, a man so intelligent. What caused him to behave so despicably? What blinded him to the truth of the Qur'an? What blinded him to the beauty of the character of the Messenger ﷺ? That he was so bitter in his opposition to him? Wealth. The love of wealth. The love of power that comes with wealth. And the arrogance that clouds a person's mind and his judgment because of wealth. That was it. Allah mentions a universal truth. Nay, indeed, man transgresses because he sees himself as independent. And the meaning of seeing oneself as independent is to do with... That's the translation of istaghna. For those of you who know Arabic, you'll know that ghani means rich, wealthy. And ghina means, again, wealth. But the word originally doesn't mean wealth so much. It actually means independence. This is why in one verse of the Qur'an Allah says, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ أَنْتُمُ الْفُقَرَاءُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ هُوَ الْغَنِيُّ الْحَمِيدُ O people, you are fuqara, you are in need of Allah. You are dependent on Allah. And Allah, He is the one, al-ghani, 
who is self-sufficient and independent. So Ghani originally doesn't mean rich, it means independent, someone who is not dependent on anybody else. And obviously when a person acquires wealth, they do become independent. So that's the corollary between the two. Otherwise, Ghani originally means independent. And here as well it means when man sees himself as independent, then he grows heirs and graces. He becomes self-important. He becomes delusional. And the greater the wealth, the more delusional a person becomes. Until he transgresses. And the meaning of transgress, here, Again, for those of you who know Arabic, originally refers to rising. Turyan means irtifar, rising, to rise. And when a person rises above his station, then he is transgressing beyond his limits. When a person rises above his true rank and station, then he's overreaching, he's stretching. That's the original meaning of yadra. And therefore, a simpler translation could be transgresses. Man transgresses when he becomes rich. He may not necessarily be rich, but the mount, because that's not the meaning of istagna, the meaning of istagna is when he sees himself as being independent. The moment man reaches a stage whereby he feels that he has sufficient wealth and sufficient means to be independent, that is the point when wealth begins to corrupt. And wealth does corrupt. We may deny it. We may actually find this offensive. We may find it very uncomfortable. The fact and the truth that wealth corrupts. Wealth corrupts. Without doubt it corrupts. We see it as empirical evidence around us, in us, in history, in fact, in fiction. Wealth corrupts. And most importantly, the Qur'an tells us, in, a, in very graphic detail, how wealth corrupts. It makes a person delusional. And I've explained this in thorough detail in Surah Al-Takathur and in Surah uh, Al-Humazah. Just to give you an example. Al-Hakumu Al-Takathur Hatta Zurtum Al-Maqabir. Rivalry, one-upmanship vying with one another, trying to outdo one another, takafa. All of this has distracted you. The truth is, you will never learn hatta zurtumul maqabir until you visit the graves. <coughs> wealth will never satisfy the acquisition of wealth. I mentioned it in Suratul Humaza. I won't go into detail, I'll suffice with that reference, refer to these surahs. For further detail, what does Allah say in Surah Al-Humazah? وَيْلٌ لِكُلِّ هُمَزَةِ اللُّمَزَةِ الَّذِي جَمْعَ مَالًا وَعَدَّدًا يَحْسَبُ أَنَّ مَالَهُ أَخْلَدًا كَلَّا لَيُنْبَذَنَّ فِي الْحُطَنَةِ Woe be unto every backbiting defamer. He who gathers wealth وَعَدَّدًا and counts it, enumerates it. That's the love of wealth. We're always counting. He thinks that his wealth will give him eternal life. The Quran says it. Wealth actually makes a person so delusional 
That wealth makes him believe that he has become immortal. Allah says, Never, far from wealth making man immortal, never, most assuredly he shall be cast and thrown into the crusher. What's a crusher? The fire of Jahannam. The incinerator, the crusher. Today's Friday. We've been encouraged to recite Surah Al-Kahf regularly. Every Friday. And in Surah Al-Kahf, Allah mentions the story of two men. One of them was rich, the other one was poor. So the rich one took the poor one on a tour of his riches. His lands, his orchards, his vineyards. So Allah says, قَالَ لِصَاحِبِهِ وَهُوَ يُحَاوِرُهُ أَنَا أَكْثَرُ مِنْكَ مَالًا وَعَزُّ نَفَرًا So whilst he was taking his poor friend or companion on a tour of his riches, his estates, his orchards, his vineyards, his property, and displaying his wealth, we have the first flash of arrogance. He said to his companion, I am greater in wealth than you are. And I am mightier. And more numerous of people than you are. I've got more backing. I've got more men. I've got more support. That's what Abu Jahl was saying as well. In modern terms, I've got a bigger crew. I've got a bigger gang. I can call on more support. I've got more men. I've got more muscle. So the first flash of arrogance, and min kamala, I am richer than you, I am wealthier than you, I've got more wealth than you have. One. Then he said, Wa I am mightier in numbers than you are. Allah then says, See how it progresses. It's very beautiful. Beautiful in the sense that the message is delivered in such a sublime manner. Then the man entered his garden whilst he was wrongful to his soul. And then surveying his estates, he said, I do not think that all of this will ever perish. Then it progresses. The next verse. And I don't think that the final hour of judgment will ever occur. See how it progresses. Then, next progression. If it does occur. So, see how it goes? I don't think this will all ever perish. But for argument's sake, let us concede that it does perish. I don't think the hour of judgment will ever come. But if it does come, fine. If I am, if it does occur, the final hour of judgment, and all of this does perish, then the truth is, I am so important to my Lord that if I am ever returned to, if if I am ever returned to my Lord, 
Not guaranteed. If, wala ir, if I am ever returned to my Lord, then I shall see even more than all of this over there. Allah will give me, my Lord will give me more there than He has ever given me here. See how it progresses? All of this to do with wealth. There's a message in there. Wealth corrupts. Wealth makes a person delusional. Wealth makes a person blind. Wealth destroys marriages, partnerships, relationships, entire families. Father turns against, children turn against parents. Husbands and wives turn against each other, but at least they're not of blood relations. But daughters will turn against their mothers, sons will turn against their fathers because of the love of wealth. Wealth is corrosive, it's corrupting, it makes a person delusional, it makes a person transgress. I've covered these topics before in Surah Al-Humazah, in Surah Al-Ra'it Al-Ladhi Yukadhibu Bid-Deen, in Surah Al-Takathur. We've done all of these over the past few months, refer to them. I'll suffice with this. Indeed, man transgresses because he sees himself as independent, as rich. But Allah says, man should never think of himself as independent. Why? Indeed, unto your Lord is the final return. Wealth will not make a person immortal. Unto Allah will be your return. Then, Have you seen one who prevents a servant? Servant here is the Prophet ﷺ. Have you seen one who prevents a servant when he prays? That was Abu Jahl. So Allah first tries to explain in a good way to Abu Jahl and his likes. Initially, there's no warning. Initially is... Have you seen one who prevents a servant when he prays? This is actually an address to Abu Jahl and people of his ilk. That do you not see that when he is praying, that maybe, maybe, he's actually on some guidance. And what he is saying is an instruction to good, is a call to good. It's a call to self-consciousness, to God-consciousness, to taqwa. Then the verse continues. Now it switches again to the Prophet Alright, do you not see? Or have you seen? In If he doesn't accept this message, but instead, what does he do? In he rejects watawalla and turns away. أي أبو جهل ألم يعلم بأن الله يرى Does he not know that Allah sees and watches everything? How dare he threaten you? O Messenger of Allah كلا never If he does not desist in his opposition and in his threats كلا لإن لم ينده If he does not desist Then لنسفعن بالناصية we shall most assuredly seize him by the forelock. Nasiyah means the forelock, the front hairs. And that's an allegory and a reference to the front part of the head. Traditionally, when people would be grabbed and seized and humbled, they would often be pulled by their front hair. 
and dragged. So that, they, they would refer to that as seizing someone by the forelock. But the nasiya originally means the hair at the front. But then that was later meant to refer to the whole forehead. So we shall seize him by the forelock, i.e. the forehead, in disgrace and in humiliation. And as found in nasiya. And what kind of forehead is this? What kind of head does he have, Abu Jahl? Not any head. Nasiyatin kathibatin khatiah. Khatiah, a sinful, kathibah, lying, deceitful forehead. That's Abu Jahl for you. And that's how he was. And remember, he threatened the Prophet wasallam. What did he say? Just like that man of Surah Al-Kahf. This is what wealth does. It makes a man delusional. It gives him false illusions of self-grandeur, of power. The man said to his companion in Surah Al-Kahf, وَأَعَزُّ نَفَرًا I am richer than you, وَأَعَزُّ نَفَرًا And I am mightier in men than you are. And that's what Abu Jahl said as well to the Prophet When Imagine, the Prophet was so mild of character. But Abu Jahl would taunt him and push him. That one day the Prophet ﷺ actually had words with him and threatened him. So Abu Jahl said to him, Oh Muhammad, what do you threaten me with? You are but one man. Do you not see that in this whole valley? I am the one Akhtarunadiya, I am the one of the greatest assembly. I can call upon the greatest support. His goons and his armed men. So Allah says here, We shall seize him by the forelock. A sinful, lying, deceitful forelock. And when we do so, Let him call his gang. Let him call his assembly. Let him call his council. We shall also summon support. Not that Allah needs it. But like for like, as an imagery. He wants to call his gang. He wants to call his support. His henchmen. His cronies and his goons. We shall call the guardian angels of hell. We shall call the infernal guards. The Zabaniya. Then Allah ends the surah by telling the Prophet ﷺ, Dismiss Abu Jahl. Kalla. Never. La tuti'i. Do not obey him. He tells you don't pray, O Messenger of Allah. You pray. And most importantly, Allah says, Nay, never. La tuti'i. Do not obey him. Wasjud. And prostrate. Waqtarib. And draw close. And that's why in a hadith is mentioned that never is a person closer to Allah than when he is when falling into prostration. Therefore, make excessive your dua in sajda. When a person is humbling himself in prostration, at the lowest point, he is actually closest to Allah. Therefore, prostrate and draw close in your prostration. With this we come to the end of Surah Al-Alaq. And uh, do remember that uh, this is one of the verses of sajda, of prostration. Uh, so do not forget to perform sajda tilawa, the prostration of recitation as it's known. And Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he would recite this verse and he would 
perform the prostration of recitation. So do not forget to perform the sajda of Dilawa. With this we come to the end of Surah Al-Alaq. As I said, it consists of two parts mainly. The first part was revealed at the very beginning of the revelation of the Qur'an. The first five verses mark the beginning of the Holy Qur'an. And this process continued for approximately 23 years. The second part of the surah, uh, second 14, set of 14 verses, was revealed in Mecca, again in the earlier years, but at some time after the revelation of the first five. And primarily they deal with Abu Jahl. But it's not just about Abu Jahl. He's the cause of the revelation. He's the supreme example of such behavior. But anyone who follows in Abu Jahl's footsteps, anyone who adopts the same behavior, anyone who shares the same characteristics, should take heed of these verses. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who appreciate the words of the Holy Qur'an and who are able to act on them. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one three triple seven or by email via sales at akstore.com produced under license by Alcotha Productions all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author any unauthorized distribution broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright